0: Bible Church of Beaufort on the web at wagp.net Good morning and welcome to the Light 88.7 FM Bible Live a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogi Dr. Brogi is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort South Carolina And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Alltel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy.
1: Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the Word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line as as always we 're so glad that you can join us if you have a particular uh, question that you 'd like to discuss this morning from god 's word as it relates to your life ministry or just your personal study of Scripture. That's what this hour is for. If you'd like to pick up the phone and call us, the number local is 525-1859. Our toll-free number for our internet listeners is 877, the call letters of our station, WAGP 980, 877-WAGP 980. Or each week, a number of people email us here directly into the studio, and you can email us, and it will pop up on the screen, that email address, this is TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. TBL at WAGP.net. When you call, if you like, you can remain totally anonymous. Uh, you can just dictate your question to the person taking the phone calls this morning, or if you prefer, you can go on the air live, and we usually give um, preference to live uh, callers, though a lot of people just are very comfortable to calling in and dictating it. However you'd like to uh, give it to us today, 525-1859, local 877-WAGP-980. Rick Good is always to be here. It is indeed, Pastor. We've got
0: a number of uh, lines that are already lit up, and so uh, we'll see if any of them are brave enough to go on the air live. In the meantime, as you indicated, oh, we do have a brave soul. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Oh, sorry to cut
3: you
1: off. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for calling today. How can we help?
3: Uh, yeah, I had a question for you, but before I do that, um, I tried to call last week, and I was told that you had an emergency pop up and you weren't able to have the show, so I pray all that worked out well for you.
1: Well, thank you so much. Um, I appreciate it.
3: Yeah. Um, my question is this. My wife and I um, have been going round and round for a couple years about Christmas. Um, we were educated uh, by the bishop at our church that Christmas trees and wreaths uh, and things of that nature are pagan uh style symbols um and real christians shouldn't have uh a christmas tree or a wreath you know or anything like that depicted in their house for christmas but yet they would put christmas trees up in the churches and the bishop had christmas tree in his house and, this, <laughs> that and the other so right. we're kind of you know we want to raise our children uh on good christian values and we don't want to you know, start lying to our children about Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and all that stuff, because one day they're going to look at us and be like, well, you know, you're telling us not to lie, but you've been lying to us for years. Um, So what's your, what is your view um, on a Christmas tree? I guess is the
1: simple question. Well, you know, some people would take a a text of scripture uh, from Isaiah 40, which is a great chapter on the greatness of God and how God is overall above the earth, and yet he is acquainted with all of our ways. And, of course, he compares uh, the worship of the true God to an idol worshiper. He says, for the uh, idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, a silversmith uh, fashions chains of silver, he was too impoverished for such a thing, selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. And people use this verse, really out of context, to say, well, that's what a Christmas tree is. It's a it's a tree and we string chains of silver on it and it's an idol. And of course, uh, it could be, I suppose, you could make anything into an idol. You can worship a doorknob if you want, uh, but... Again, uh, it all depends what you put into your thoughts behind it. I, d- I don't have any problem with celebrating Christmas. It is true that there are some pagan origins around that time frame. Uh, we do not know precisely when Jesus Christ was born. We don't know if he was born in, in December, if he was born in, uh, in in March or April, or we, we just don't know. The scripture does not give us that precise information. Uh, What was true in the first century is there was a Roman pagan holiday when people exchanged gifts during that time frame. And the Christians uh, thought, well, listen, they're celebrating something that is really evil in honor of a false God. Why don't we celebrate something that is true in honor of God the Son? Jesus Christ. And so there came a time in the history of the church when people began to celebrate Christmas. I think, you know, it would be wrong, obviously, to say that he was born on December 25th. He might have been. It's a tradition that goes back many, many uh, hundreds and hundreds of years, but we cannot dogmatically say that he was born December 25th. Uh, But nonetheless, I think it's a great opportunity, just like the Christians in the early centuries thought, well, look, we might as well take a pagan holiday and turn it around for the glory of God and use it to spread the gospel of Jesus. That was strategic on their part. Uh, Martin Luther, it's said, is the first one to uh, have celebrated a Christmas with a Christmas tree. And there were literal candles on the trees. Uh, I'm not sure how, 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 how the safety uh, fire people would approve of that today, but still uh, they were announcing that Jesus is the light of the world, that light came and shone amongst the darkness. Uh, so I don't have any problem with it. Uh, there are some Christians who are very rigid and legalistic, and there are some Christians in the early times of our own country Uh, The Puritans, for instance, did not celebrate uh, Christmas. They thought it was uh, something we should ignore. Uh, There were some other things they did that was kind of straight-laced that don't necessarily have a, a biblical prohibition. If there was a clear prohibition in the Word of God against it, then certainly we should not do it. But if you use it as an opportunity, and for me, as a pastor, there are two times during the year when people are most open uh, to an invitation to church and most open to a discussion uh, about the things of God. Uh, and one, of course, is Christmas, and the other is at Easter. At Easter, for instance, this year, we had over 2,000 people who came on our campus for an Easter egg hunt. Now, some people would say, well, the Easter egg, you know, and the whole bunny thing is a pagan thing. Well, it can be. Certainly, if if that's all a a person thinks about Easter, then they've missed the message. But we had an Easter egg hunt on our campus, and uh, hundreds and hundreds, well over a thousand of the parents and children that came, most of whom were unchurched, heard the plan of salvation that day under one of the tents. And it was an exciting opportunity. They saw skits, and they saw the true Easter message enacted. There's nothing literally wrong with uh, going and picking up an egg any more than there is the exchanging of gifts at Christmas. So, you know, sometimes Christians impose rules that aren't put upon us from God's word. And there is a certain freedom that we have in Christ. That freedom becomes a negative if it has the appearance of evil or doesn't glorify God. But certainly you could take something like Christmas and use it for the honor and glory of Christ. And I think we should. And I, and I think we can appear unnecessarily weird as Christians, people, where we unnecessarily turn people off. We, say, well, we don't celebrate Christmas. It's a pagan holiday. That's just silly. And it's counterproductive to the kingdom of God. I appreciate that question a lot. Let's go to the next caller. They're waiting patiently. Indeed.
0: Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line
3: morning, Pastor. Appreciate the program.
0: Well,
1: thanks for calling. How can we help today?
3: My question is in reference to 1 John 1-9 uh, versus the uh, atonement that was paid on the cross. We know that Jesus paid for the sins of the believers past, present, and future. I would want to know if you would address that uh, in light of 1 John 1-9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to give us our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Uh, A couple of uh, issues. In the Word of God, there is a distinction between what we would call a positional truth and a practical truth. A positional truth is something that is yours by virtue of the fact that you are in Jesus Christ. A practical truth is something that... um, you need to apply so for instance in the word of god the christian has been told that he has been given a spiritual gift but paul the apostle will tell timothy to stir up the gift that's within him namely use that spiritual gift so uh the scripture will say that we have been declared righteous we've been imputed to our persons the very righteousness of christ god counts us as righteous it's called justification The practical side of that positional truth is we are to live holy. We are to live out that holiness that God has credited to our accounts. Uh, There are verses in the Word of God that teaches complete, total, eternal forgiveness of sin. For instance, in Colossians 1, we are told here in verse 15, in whom, speaking of Christ, in whom we have the forgiveness of sins. A little bit later in the same epistle, in chapter two, he says, you are dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He has made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our transgressions. How so? Having canceled out their certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So he uses a very picturesque, illustration to show the complete positional forgiveness we have in Christ. This, of course, is what we call a prison epistle. And uh, this uh, epistle, uh, Paul uses, as he does in Ephesians, uh, different analogies from the setting in which he finds himself. A certificate of debt was a, a Roman decree that would have been placed on the outside of a home if you're under house arrest or outside the door of a cell if you're in a Roman debtor's prison or paying some kind of debt for your crime against the institution called Rome. And on it was listed the crimes. And when the crime was paid, they would literally remove the certificate of debt. They would write on it, Tetelestai, and they would put a Roman wax seal next to the word indicating that this was an official uh, declaration by the Roman government. Tetelestai is the same word, of course, used in John 19.30 that we translate, it is finished. So that if that person was ever rearrested in the empire... All they would need to do is produce their certificate of debt, and it would indicate that their debt had been paid and that they were free once again to travel among the empire. And God uses that picture. He says, we had our certificate of debt, which decrees against us condemned us because we had broken the laws of God, and God has removed our certificate of debt, and he's nailed it to the cross of Christ. That's positional forgiveness. 1 John is really dealing with what we might call fellowship forgiveness or the practical side of forgiveness in fact he introduces the epistle by saying what we've seen and heard we proclaim to you that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son Jesus Christ so he says I'm writing these things so that you can have fellowship with us and with with the Lord God and this is the message we've heard from him and we announce to you that God is light that means he's holy he's without sin The imagery of light is used in different ways in the New Testament, sometimes to dispel darkness. Uh, That is, truth dispels error. Here it's used as in many places to refer to the holiness of God. God is holy, and in him there is no sin, no darkness. If we say, we have fellowship with him. And if we say is a very important statement that runs all the way through this little book because he's dealing with people who say one thing, That is not accurate. If we say, as many did, that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And there are people like that today. They say they're right with God and God and them have made peace over their sin. I don't think so. Uh, If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, We have fellowship with one another. and the blood of his son, Jesus cleanses us. So he's talking about the believer. He's writing to his little children a statement that is used throughout this first letter that John writes. He's writing to the born ones. um, And he's exhorting them to walk with God in intimacy. Now, where does John get this idea of uh, keeping your heart clean before the Lord, even though you 're a saved person, He gets it from something that Jesus did uh, at the last supper that evening. If you remember, they were in a debate according to luke 's gospel luke twenty two as to who is the greatest in the kingdom of God, and in the midst of that discussion. The Bible says that Jesus um, got up, he laid aside his garments, he he took on the towel of a slave, and he poured water into the basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet. And of course, when he comes to Simon Peter, Simon asks the question, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus said, what I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. In other words, what I'm about to do, Peter, you're not going to get now, but later on, hereafter, hereafter... Um, there's going to come a time in your life when you're going to grasp the meaning of what I am talking about. Now, there are some things that they were going to learn that night that became plain to them about just being a servant. But in terms of how we are to serve the Lord, they would not get until after the cross. So he's asked the question, Lord, you're washing my feet, what I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said, Well never show you wash my feet. Peter realizes that here is the Lord of glory, the creator of the universe, who is stooping down to wash his feet. And Peter says, no, you know, I, I should be the one, in essence, he's saying that should be washing your feet. But then Jesus said, if, you, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. And the word here, part, is a parallel word that's used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe fellowship with God. You have no participation with me, no service with me in fellowship. Well, Simon Peter said, you know, if it's this way, well, Lord, I'm willing to take a bath, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And so the fact that the Lord Jesus is addressing an issue of spiritual significance as it relates to spiritual cleanness is clear. He said, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean but not all of you, because the Bible says he knew the one who is betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. There was one there present at this time, had yet uh, partaken of the sop, and his name is Judas, and he was not clean. He had not had salvation's bath. And so Jesus said, you don't need a bath, but you need to have your feet washed. You're already clean, but um, you need to have your feet cleaned. So they had had salvation's bath. Sometimes we say, once saved, always saved. In this context, we might say, once bathed, always bathed. But as we walk through this world, our feet get dirty. And of course, this is what someone in the first century would have experienced before you came to an event. Just like today, maybe you're going out for dinner in the evening, you take a shower, you shave, you clean up, uh, and they would do that. And of course, on the way uh, to the home where the host was going to serve dinner, they would either walk through dusty streets or liquid mud. Uh, there wasn't really much in between. And when you arrived, you didn't need another bath, but your feet got dirty along the way. And Jesus is reminding us that these guys had had salvation's bath, with the exception of Judas. But as they walk through this world, their feet get dirty, and they need to keep their feet clean. And this is what they would not understand that evening, but they would understand metatata after these things later on. And that's really what John is spelling out as Peter does in his first epistle. When we walk through this world, if we've been saved, we have union with God, but God wants us to have communion with him. Uh, We have a relationship with God that's eternal, but our fellowship is moment by moment. So, relationally, positionally, all of our sin has been forgiven. And this is important to understand because there have been people, for instance, very often today in a number of Pentecostal uh, denominations, they would say that if you die with some unconfessed sin on your soul that you uh, will die lost. And that's why they would say, well, once you get saved, you need to make sure you keep confessing your sins so you can stay saved. No, this has nothing to do with staying saved. There are some people who die out of fellowship with the Lord. First Corinthians 5 indicates, though, they go to heaven. Uh, but God wants us as we serve him, to walk in intimacy with him. Uh, I often use the illustration uh, of an earthly father. For instance, I have been born of Richard John Brogy. He's my father, I'm his son. That fact cannot change. But our intimacy, not our union, but our communion can change if I do something to wrong him. And until I make it right, the intimacy is lost. And so it is in everyday relationships with people, and so it is in our relationship to the living God. So 1 John is not a salvation verse. It's written to save people, and it's really practically applying the truth that Jesus illustrated in John 13, and so he'll conclude that section by saying, My little children, I'm writing these things to you, not as a motive to sin, but as a motive not to sin. But if anyone does sin, and we do sin as Christians, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who's the propitiation for our sins. So that's a great question. You might want to, if you want to explore this a little bit further, I preach through the gospel of John chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Listen to the message in John 13, and I go into a lot more depth. I spent an hour on it, and I've just spent about four minutes on it. Thanks for that question. Let's go to the next one, Rick.
0: All right, indeed. As a matter of fact, you were brought up the subject of once saved, always saved, and that's going to be our next dictated question. But we always give preference to live callers, and we have one standing by. So let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Good morning, Doctor Brogy.
1: Hey, thanks for calling. How can I help?
2: Yesterday, I was listening to the radio station, and uh, I heard this show. And forgive me if I don't remember the exact name. It's Education and Something by I think it's Bob. Boyd issues and in Education.
1: White. Yeah, Issues right. in Education. Yes. Uh huh.
2: Bob and Jerry Boyd. I think. Right. They were talking about with all the liberal media. They had, they put out this thing that you know with the strike down of DOMA and. The other things the Supreme Court put out it was almost like there was this universal sweep of support for gay marriage, and they said that they you know, conveniently leave out that still over 38 or around 38 or 37 states still are able to define marriage as one man and one woman. But they went on to say, though, that that's not stopping them. And they, the issue that I want to talk to you about is they said that they are forcing uh Youth groups and churches and other groups to uh, uh, have gay leaders, et cetera, and and this is what I wanted to talk to you about. They talked about they talked to this gentleman from the Pacific Justice Institute, uh-huh. and and he was saying that there is going to be, especially in California right now, and it could spread. But there are going to be uh, homosexuals out there. They're probably trying it now, who go to these churches. To request to be married, and if they're denied, then they sue the churches. So the gentleman was saying go to their website to uh, follow their steps to do a purpose statement to defend yourself. So, my question is, is Does Community Bible Church have something in place to protect itself from frivolous lawsuits like that that could potentially take away the church?
1: Well, it's a good question. Um, I'm actually in the process of rewriting our Constitution and bylaws, uh, which the elders of the church will uh, examine with me. And if we're in agreement, we'll present it at some point, because there are some issues that we have officially entered into the minutes of elders' meetings, but we haven't put into our Constitution and bylaws And one of those issues is uh, the definition of marriage. What we've done as an elder board is enough to protect us legally, but we want to communicate it on a broader sense that marriage is defined between one man and one woman. But we have a number of uh, teachings and sermons that document that, and not by accident, but certainly by design. Uh, The spirit of Antichrist is definitely at work in our age, and this whole idea of... Uh, homosexual marriage and gay rights is just, uh, it's moving so fast. There's no human explanation for it. These are spiritual forces at work. I already got a text just before I walked up here from someone this week in RA training at one of the, or RM, they call them resident mentor, advisor training. And they said it's just covered over in homosexual issues this morning. Uh, The College of Charleston uh, this year. For and I would uh, appeal to any college of Charleston graduates that are listening to me this morning uh, the required reading for the freshman class and for a number number of years, probably a couple of decades now when a student Enters the university, most state universities across the country now have set up a program where there is a mandatory book that you read, and usually the author of that book will then come in at some point and uh, discuss it and um, uh, talk about um, you know what the contents of the book was. Well, the the, the book this year is very pornographic in nature. And if you want to get some finer details on it, you might go to Palmetto Family Council. Anyone listening? Uh, Palmetto Family Council in the state of South Carolina is the um, political arm, so to speak, of Focus on the Family. Focus on the Family is a 501c3 organization, nonprofit, and so you cannot politically lobby. You can have political opinions as an individual, but you cannot politically lobby uh, for an individual as an organization. And so, what Focus did a number of years ago across America is they encouraged uh, different states to set up their own entities. And in the state of South Carolina, it's Palmetto Family. And the brother, Orrin, who, who runs that organization out of uh, Columbia, has done a great job interfacing with the College of Charleston, but to no avail in this situation. Uh, money speaks. Uh, graduates uh, speak that's why I would appeal to graduates because what they're requiring the freshman class to read universities providing for the book they're paying for it our tax dollars at work and uh, it's a book all about homosexual and lesbian sex Uh, the theme of the book is written by two lesbian authors And um, I assume they'll be speaking up there at the College of Charleston. What it needs to happen is some uh, graduates to pick up the phone and call. You know, uh, I I find this very objectionable objectionable, that this is required reading of the entire freshman class into this university. And I think you need to uh, back off. um, Or uh, I am going to stop giving money. And the various uh, chapters across the country need to get together and write letters to the university. Our voices need to be heard. This is what it means to be salt and light. Now, Bob and Jerry Boyd are great people. They've been in the studio here at WAGP a number of years ago, and I interviewed them live on the air. Uh, They're good people. Um, Again, right now, it is legal in the United States for a church to be able to define marriage as between a man and a woman. Uh, but I, I don't doubt for one second, and I'm on tape 20 years ago discussing this because I had read uh, what had taken place in the 1980s between two Harvard graduates when they met together and planned a strategy that would be two decades long in promoting uh, the homosexual agenda. And what they planned together back there in the 1980s has, has come to fruition. And... Um, I think the next thing that will happen is that churches who do not want to perform homosexual marriage or who discriminate in their hiring processes in that they will not allow homosexuals to serve on their staff— Uh, what will happen is uh, they will lose their 50C3 status, their nonprofit status. Now, churches technically do not have to be a 501C3 organization. Uh, They're given nonprofit status so that if someone writes a check to a church, it is tax deductible. And the spirit behind that is that they saw churches as doing something that was fundamentally critical to the help of the American society, not only in helping individuals become whole, but also in offering aid, whether it's feeding the poor, uh, ministry to people with mental, spiritual problems. And and they wanted to encourage that because we came from a Judeo-Christian ethic. Uh, I, I guarantee, listen, Barack Obama is deceptive. Um, you need to pray for him, whether you like him or not, but he's a liar. He is a liar, And he is deceptive. And, you know, he came out when he was running saying, well, you know, I'm in favor of marriage between one man and one woman. No, he wasn't. He had made so many statements in all the different homosexual groups that he had spoken to that countered what he said publicly, and those are easily documented. And then, of course, once he fulfills his second term, he has, you know, a new revelation in terms of what he views marriage to be. Uh, the vice president of the United States also has an evil agenda. These men are lost. They're just following the spirit of the age. Um, And the spirit of the age is the spirit of Antichrist. And he's very much at work. There is no other possible plausible explanation for the speed in which this thing is unfolding, other than the spirit of Antichrist that it is work. We wage war not against powers and not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and evil forces that are at work. Um, anyway, uh, these are important issues, and the church will be dealing with them across America. Uh, we legally have the right to say we will not uh, hire someone who is homosexual to serve in ministry. We legally have the right to say we will not marry them. But you see, what's happening now is, of course, in your mainline denominations, they're saying it's okay. So it's beginning to spread there. And now what's happening is the door is being opened into evangelical churches and where kids are thinking, well, it's no big deal. It's the 18 to 25-year-old group who really scare me who say, this is no big deal. And of course, the reason there's such a receptivity to homosexual uh, perversion is because of heterosexual permissiveness. The two go together, hand in hand. And if uh, you don't believe that, someone might want to listen to my sermon, Is It Okay to Be Gay? It's on YouTube, and it's uh, online also at... Um, our church website or at org. Is it okay to be gay? And uh, heterosexual immorality always is followed by homosexual perversion. And that's the day that we're living in. And so it's moving very, very fast. So uh, great question. I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one, Rick.
0: All right. We uh, had a person write in. Where in the Bible does it say, once
1: saved, always saved? Well, the phraseology "once saved, always saved" is not found in the Bible, but the doctrine or the teaching—the word "doctrine" means teaching—the teaching of eternal security is plainly found in the Bible. And uh, what someone might want to do, especially, is that's the um, that that's the theme of the text that we're on this Sunday as I'm preaching chapter by chapter and verse by verse through Romans, and it deals with the eternal security of the believer, Romans eight twenty nine and 30, that all whom God called, he justified, all that he justified, he glorified. And as uh, we will ultimately in a few weeks approach the end of the chapter, he will make it very clear that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So there are direct statements as to the eternal security of the believer. And uh, let me just give you an example or two. Um, For instance, in John chapter three, most of us have verse 16 memorized. In verse 18, it says, he who believes in him is not judged, not condemned. Uh, The old English of the King James says, he who does not believe has been condemned already. So God makes it very clear. The one who believes is not condemned. Uh, If you move a little bit later into John chapter 5, another verse dealing plainly with the eternal security of the believer, again, the phraseology, once saved, always saved, is not found in the Word of God, but the idea that once we meet Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, um, that is a secure truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has... Notice the present tense, not will have, because eternal life is a present tense experience. Has eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. That's John five twenty four. Um, eternal life is defined in John seventeen three, not as heaven, but as knowing the Lord. There is a future dimension to eternal life when it changes from earth into heaven, when it changes from a fallen body into a glorified body. Uh, but it is something that we can know today, knowing the Lord. That's the promise of the Old Covenant, of the New Covenant talked about in the Old Testament. The one who believes has eternal life. Question, if I can have right now eternal life, how long is eternal life? You say, that's a silly question. Of course, uh, it's eternal. It's eternal. You can't lose something that is eternal. I'm just looking at one book in the Bible. Let me turn over page or two. Now I'm in John chapter 6, and Jesus said in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. The, re- the reason you're following me, this is right after the miracle of feeding the 5,000, is because, number one, I feed you. Number two, it's pretty entertaining. Uh, you, you like the miracles and you like the food. But then he says, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the son of man shall give to you. Because this is not something you earn. It's something he gives to you. This is what you ought to passionately seek. He's saying, for in him, the father, even God sets his seal. Well, they said, well, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God. It's not the work of man. It's the work of God that you believe in him, in Jesus, whom he has sent. And then he says, a few verses later, verse 37, all, A-double-L, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What's the will of him, the Father who sent me? This is the will of him, the Father who sent me, that of all, there it is again, A-double-L, all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that Everyone, without exception, who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For Jesus not to raise up on the last day someone who has believed it would be to disobey the Father. But he didn't come to disobey the Father. He came to obey the Father. And, of course, the resurrection that he's speaking of in the context is the resurrection of life. Um, John chapter 10, Jesus makes this statement. My sheep hear my voice, and, and I know them, and I give et- and they follow me. So a true sheep hears the voice of Christ, and they follow Christ. That's a mark of conversion. It's not how we're converted. It's a result of conversion. Then he says, and I give. Again, we don't earn it. I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So you don't hold on to God. God holds on to you. So there are many passages, direct statements. And then there are theological truths, like uh, Ephesians 1, for instance, it says you receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. And then in Ephesians 4, it says you're sealed with him for the day of redemption. In other words, you... Receive the Spirit the moment you're converted, and you never can lose the Spirit. He's the earnest. He's the down payment. He's the guarantee that what God began, he will complete. Now, this caller, if they really want to study this issue in detail, go to searchthescriptures.org. Go to the Back to Basics series. Go to Session 1. It deals with the eternal security of the believer, and I go through dozens of verses that teach the eternal security of the true child of God. Very so good. I hope that helps.
0: All right, 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980. Or you can always email us at tbl@wagp.net. That's a tbl at net. That's tbl at WAGP
1: dot net. Okay. Um, does Hebrews thirteen four permit any and every intimate act between a husband and a wife? That well, was called
0: in a couple of weeks ago.
1: Okay. Well, God says the marriage bed in Hebrews thirteen four should not be defiled. That God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Uh, in other words, in the context, He's not dealing with the specifics of intimacy. He's dealing with uh, the abuses of intimacy outside of the marriage bed with premarital sex and with extramarital sex. Now, I will say that there's a popular book that has been written by the pastor of Mars Hill up in the uh, Northwest. And uh, to me, it's perverted. Uh, I'm just going to just tell you as I see it. And he advocates for sexual activity that homosexual couples perform, uh, not something that heterosexual couples should engage in. Um, he talks about things that two males do uh, that, uh, that he advocates it's okay for a husband and wife to do. It's just sickening. But his past has been flavored by his own personal testimony deeply into porn before he was converted, and I think that has you know, um, influenced the way he thinks on this subject. And so I would say, no, there are some things that are disgusting, that are wrong, that are physically harmful. Um, So everything is not permissible, but that's not the focus of that verse. But you just let scripture speak for itself. If God calls certain activity like what, what a man does with a man as an abomination, and then we invite a man to do that with his wife, that's just sick. Anyway, I appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one.
0: All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. Or email us if you have a question to tbl at wagp.net. Richard from Bellingham, Washington, is in his 70s. Bellingham, and, Massachusetts. I'm like. sorry, yeah, yep. Bellingham. I'm, I used to live in Seattle. You're right. Bellingham right. On, yeah, Bellingham, Massachusetts. I'm a 70-year-old, recently married male. Who left the uh, Mormon faith uh, approximately three years ago. My wife is a devout Catholic. I am
1: searching for the truth. What is your view of the Catholic Church? Really would appreciate your feedback. Well, I'm so glad that you have left the Mormon Church because they are a church that is riddled with untruth. Uh, the devil, when he comes, he comes as an angel of light. He looks Christian, smells Christian, walks Christian, but he's not. And the Mormon Church is that very kind of institution. Uh, On all the major historical doctrines of Christianity, the Mormon Church is in error. You know, there are some things that good, godly Christian people differ on, but they are not tests of conversion, But there are other things that are tests of conversion in the Bible. Uh, Every Christian believes that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. Good Christians differ as to how that calendar will unfold. I would say a test of orthodoxy is that you do teach and believe, as the Bible plainly says, and there's no dispute on this, that he is coming literally, physically, bodily to judge the living and the dead. That's a test of orthodoxy. So when you look at the major doctrines of Christianity, Uh, the Mormon church is in error. Uh, For instance, the uh, authority and infallibility of the Bible. When you talk to a Mormon, they will say, well, the Bible is true as much as it's been translated accurately. Uh, You listen carefully to what they say. Yes, we believe it's true as much as it's been translated accurately. Meaning the Bible as we have it today has been mistranslated in Uh, riddled with error. Now, I wrote a little booklet. It's uh, out on Answers in Genesis. It's also coming out on Amazon next month, How to Prove the Bible is True. And in that, I deal with the accurate transmission of the Word of God. It's a short little book that you could give to someone that deals with five proofs for the authority of the Word of God. How do we know the Bible is the only book God has ever written? Uh, But the Mormons deny the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible. Number two, they deny the virgin birth as we know it. They say God the Father had a human body, came down to earth, had sex with the Virgin Mary, and that's how Jesus was conceived. Well, that's not how the Bible paints the picture. Number three, they deny the deity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, they say when they use the term Son of God, oh, we believe he's the Savior, the Son of God. They don't mean the same thing that you mean, that I mean, when we read the plain truth of Scripture. They use the same words of historic Christianity, but they define those words differently. When they use the term Son of God, they use it in the sense, well, yeah, he's the Son of God, and you're a daughter of God, and I'm a son of God, and we're all daughters and son of God, but we're not that he is God the Son. So a major difference. So they deny the authority of the word of God. They deny the virgin birth as taught in scripture. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, You know, they deny the second coming as the Bible teaches it. Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem. They say he's coming back to Missouri. Oh, really? Okay. That's interesting. Um, The book of Mormon, Alma chapter seven says that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. Oh, okay. Well, the Bible says he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, which is right. They can't both be right. I could go on, example after example after example, where they depart from plain, clear teachings from the Word of God. So thank God you left. Um, You're searching for the truth. What I want to encourage you to do is to go to searchthescriptures.org and listen to the presentation online, Would You Like to Have God as Your Friend? Listen to that, because that's what cri- that's what's critical. And then you want to find a Bible-believing, Christ-exalting church that teaches you must be born again. We broadcast in Massachusetts, and we get calls from people who say, I'm looking for a good church. I can direct you. So you can email us back, and we will direct you uh, to a good, healthy church in that area that lifts up the Word of God and teaches what the Scriptures plainly says. Uh, I wish I could spend more time on that, but we've got another caller, so let's go to them, Rick. All
0: right, very good. Thank you for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, good morning, Pastor Carl or Rick. Good morning. to Tal- Talib calling.
1: Hey, Talib. Thanks for hey, calling today.
3: brothers. I appreciate your ministry. Um, Pastor Carl, you know, we recognize you as a man of God and as someone called to the ministry to preach. Um, and how the prophetic books also speak of the responsibility as a pastor or a shepherd of the flock. Some, I'm sure, may not recognize your role and your responsibility and your calling. Could you speak to how some of the prophetic books in the Old Scripture mandate the prophet to take charge, shepherd, and uh, feed his flock? And I'll hang up and just listen to your response. Thank you.
1: Well, it's a good question. Again, uh, the, the Old Testament certainly needs to be understood in light of the New Testament. I'm, I'm not a prophet. Uh, that's an Old Testament office, um, and it was certainly one of the foundational offices in the New Testament church, though the gift of prophecy has continued to be given. Uh, it's one of the 20 spiritual gifts li- listed in the New Testament, but there is a distinction in the Word of God between office and prophet. Uh, The office of apostle was a unique office, for instance. uh, It was given only to a select group chosen by Christ. They had seen him in his resurrected body, and if indeed they had been chosen and seen the resurrected Lord uh, and been called by him to be an apostle, a sent one. Uh, then they would have the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle can do. You, you can't even reconstruct what is necessary to be an apostle. So there are no apostles today. Every once in a while I go by a church and it says, Apostle so-and-so, you know, is the pastor. Well, he's not an apostle. Now, there is the gift of apostleship, um, but we don't title people after their spiritual gifts anymore. And then someone with the gift of mercy, we say, well, he's mercy, Carl Brogie. Uh, you know, you, uh, so let's not be confusing. Um, but most of these people who call themselves today apostles, they 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 just don't know what the Word of God plainly says, and it's a dangerous title to put on yourself. Um, the office of prophet was unique. The gift of prophecy had two dimensions to it in the early church. One was foretelling, predictive. The other was forthtelling, taking what God had written and then expounding it. And really in the Old Testament office, you see both uh, under uh, uh, unfolding. A prophet would foretell the future. And if indeed he could foretell long-term prophecies, it would be uh, affirmed by the fact that he would tell short-term prophecies that would come true um and so moses gives that test of a true prophet in deuteronomy 18 but then very often he would take what god had revealed to him and he just recite it over and over and over and over again and he'd he'd preach it as as truth and that's really what the office of prophet does today he doesn't come up with any new revelation because the canon of scripture is now closed there there was a time and passages like first corinthians um 11 to 14, that whole section of Scripture that deals with prophets in the church, and before the Scripture was completed, there would be people who would receive direct revelation from God. That has ceased with the completion of Scripture, and I have messages on that that deal with why that's true, how we know that's really true. Uh, There are certainly aspects of leaders that you will find in the Old Testament uh, that still apply today, remember all scripture is given by inspiration of the Spirit, uh, and it is profitable and so when when God speaks about the Old Testament, he tells us there 's things that we can learn from it there 's profit in the Old Testament scriptures, and so we see the New Testament constantly appealing to the Old Testament and teaching us lessons. Paul says these things were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages would come. And so say the, um, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel deals with the role of a shepherd. He deals with the duty of a watchman. That would still apply today because under the new covenant, Shepherds do the same thing, and he talks about unrighteous shepherds who were just lining their own pockets and true shepherds of God, and, and the New Testament echoes that same truth, whether it's Paul in Acts 20 or Peter in 1 Peter 5 and how we are warning people like a watchman does, and again, we, we have to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, but there's much that can be learned from the Old Testament leaders of Israel that still apply in our day. Um, and, and that is clear as you read the New Testament. I, I appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one, Rick.
0: 525-1859, toll free 877-WAGP 980. Or you can always email us at tbl@wagp.net. That's tbl at net. That's t b l. W-A-G-P dot net. I thought you were
1: going to go a little longer on that one. So Maybe we I can have... squeak in another question or two. And by the way, if you're in the area and you're looking for a church home, uh, on Tuesday and Thursday nights, I will often hold a meeting called Meet the Pastor. And a week from Tuesday and a week from Thursday, we'll be meeting in Bluffton and in Beaufort, respectively, Bluffton at our Community Bible Church campus, uh, which is on Marsh Circle, right behind the BMW dealership. Uh, And on, uh, what is it? Two Coastal Drive. Yeah, Two Coastal Drive. I want to call it March Turtle. Two Coastal Drive, right behind the BMW dealership. And then in Beaufort, we will be meeting here at 638 Paris Island Parkway. So that's a week from Tuesday, a week from Thursday. If you're looking for a church home, I do a little presentation where I share our core values. And many times people come and they're not even sure of their salvation. They will know how to be sure before they leave. Um, And then I deal with questions that they write down as they come in that they would like me to specifically address. I either answer them in the presentation or at the end of the meeting, I deal with any questions that I've not specifically dealt with. Let's see if we can grab another question or two.
0: All right, two things. First of all, before we get to the next question, a listener uh, wanted to – didn't catch the the book
1: that uh, certain –
0: Colleges are, are requiring students to teach.
1: If, if they go to Palmetto Family Council, just type in that Google, uh, you will see the president. And uh, discuss this issue that's going on at the Ch- College of Charleston. It will give the name of the book, the authors, what he has done in interfacing with the co- uh, that that particular university, and so that's that's the best resource right now that I know that's available. He wrote me a personal email last week and wanted me to respond to him, and I appreciated what he has done. Let's go uh, All right. to and another one regarding
0: college. Uh, listener ha- would like to know if you have any practical advice or tips on how to effectively share the gospel on a college campus.
1: Yes, I do. And um, I did it for 12 years. In fact, I used to do all the training for the National Campus Ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. I trained them using a booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. And you either had to come to one of my training seminars or you had to listen to it back then on video. And they did that for over a decade. I've been absent from that organization a number of years. But i I don't think any longer you can just start as the Four Spiritual Laws says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. John 10.10, 10, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly and for God will love the world. It needs context. Today, people know very little about the Bible. So when you approach a college student today... Many of them don't even know who Adam is. The biblical illiteracy is just unbelievable. And so I think you have to kind of give a bigger picture. And so that's why I rewrote my own booklet that is now in Spanish. It's in uh, the cozy language. It's in Ukrainian. And it's just beginning to get translated now into Hindi for India. And it's entitled, Would You Like to Have God as Your Friend?, And if someone would just sit down and read through that booklet, if they want to be trained in terms of using illustrations, they can listen to the uh, DVD that accompanies that, that is also online. And if they call Search the Scriptures, they can order it. Um, So you can order it online. It is user-friendly so that if you don't have the gift of evangelism, but we have all called to do the work of an evangelist, you can use that booklet and walk someone through the plan of salvation. All right, we've got uh, about a minute left. Yeah, so um, I appreciate that person's heart and spirit. Uh, And by the way, I don't make any money on selling the booklets. We sell them at cost so that people can use them. But they're not designed just to hand to people. Um, They're really designed to walk someone through. Now, I I handed it to an individual in Israel. And that person wrote me back. I I just had a brief encounter getting off a bus at a stop, and he was a Jewish man. And he wrote me back about three months later and told me he'd become a Christian reading the booklet. So that's exciting. That happens. Uh, The pastor in India that I'm helping right now, he has asked for English versions. And last week he emailed me, and he said four Hindi people who knew English responded and came to Faith in Christ. He said these were all hardcore Hindus who received Christ as their Savior. So it's just a simple presentation of the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So we want to present it clearly. Well, we're out of time. Thanks so much for joining us today. Have a great day.